0: Hello,
1: uh, welcome to the fifth um, podcast in this series and today I'll be talking to Lynn Pettinger about her work on digital NHS systems and the often unintended consequences um, of them being implemented and as well as in some cases the role they play in commercialisation and privatisation. If you've got any comments on any of this or any thoughts, I'd love to hear them, either on my blog, which is this thisisnotasociology.blog, or you can get me on Twitter, at Chris H. Till. Okay, so now I'm talking to Lynn Pettinger, um, who lectures at the uh, Department of Sociology at the University of Warwick, and uh, we're going to talk about some research uh, and work that she's done with uh, Andrew Goffey and Ewan Speed, as well as um, uh, on her own as well. Um, which I think are, is really interesting, really, um, insightful in relation to the themes of, of this podcast, digital health, digital capitalism. Uh, so, hi, Lynn. Hi, Chris. Uh, thanks for coming to speak to me over here in Leeds. Uh, it's good to see you. Um, so first of all, if maybe you could tell me a bit about, um, this work you've done into the, um, the use of data in the NHS and how it's transformed. So how did you come to do this research?
0: Okay. It came about um, in the aftermath of the 2012 Health and Social Care Act, uh, one of those, let's say, slightly drunken conversations or definitely caffeine-infused conversations Uh, my colleague Ewan who's a health service researcher with a particular interest in health policy, um, Andrew Goffey who's got expertise in software and me and my expertise is in the study of work and in processes of marketisation. So we were angry about the Health and Social Care Act and then started thinking about what would happen if the three of our interests came together. So we came up with a project that we gave the worst title too, information as a regulatory device, but the idea was to hint at the ways in which data gathering was so significant to the um, reorganisation of the NHS that came out as a result of the Health and Social Care Act, so how information was used to kind of create the balance between uh, organisations that were newly invited to collaborate but were simultaneously being framed as competitors. So that that was a, a you know an organisational problem because mm-hmm. who would share information when in another point you're up to um, to be commissioned for the same kinds of services. So um, we uh, started thinking about those kinds of themes, and then we did a specific study of how a frailty service was set up. So a frailty service um, was designed to. Um, provide a way to catch the frail elderly prior to them going into hospital. So, of course, hospital is the most expensive form of care, and it's also the least good for patients because if they're in their homes, they're more comfortable. Um, So the Frailty Service was um, a collaboration between NHS, non-NHS, social work, council organisations, and obviously it affects private sector like care homes and things like that. So we used it as a way to explore... Um, this organisational change that came out in the Health and Social Care Act, and to uh, understand something of of the problems of the Health and Social Care Act. So if I say one key thing about the Health and Social Care Act, um, for people to get a sense of why this was such a significant change, it used to be the case that the NHS was set up that the state was obliged to provide care. The aftermath of the Health and Social Care Act in the legislation is the idea that the state now promotes care and that wording is really important because it means instead of care being provided by an NHS organisation, it can now be provided by any qualified provider. And that is why we now have healthcare provided by big corporations like Serco and Virgin. And it also changes the shape and the organisational structure of some of the traditional NHS organisations who can now lead on care provision. Mm-hmm. So it's a massive shift.
1: So the NHS becomes this uh, kind of almost like a broker or a yeah. Yeah, or, or, or broad provider, almost a platform, yes. I suppose, for, um, yes. for health rather than actually providing it. That's really interesting. Um, a lot of the um, work you've done has, has focused on specifically on the role that, that data and information plays in this. Um, and I think that you've, um, you've talked about this as an information revolution um, in the NHS. To what extent do you see that as being um, something which... Is that something which inevitably uh, enables private enterprise... Entry into this field, uh, into the NHS, um, or could it be seen as, as simply a more, just a more efficient, more effective means of management?
0: Okay, I think the key idea of the phrase of information revolution mm-hmm. is intended to carry all kinds of other connotations with it, so all kinds of other promises right. about how the NHS can be improved. And I can say something about those. I don't think that technological change per se brings with it inevitably a process of privatisation for yeah. private providers. And I don't think that those two things, uh, I, I, and so I don't think that's a necessarily the outcome of what's going on. However, I think in the Health and Social Care Act and in recent history of the NHS, technology has often been caught up in and captured by a privatisation mm-hmm. process. So that those two tendencies are seen as uh, kind of working together and um, supporting each other. In lots of complex ways,
1: I think. Uh, one aspect of this, which um, I found really interesting in, in, in reading a couple of your papers on this, uh, was um, one of the principles you cited from the the Caldecott review, which is, um, I think, to quote, the, "the duty to share information can be as important as the duty to protect patient confidentiality." And this th- th- this was really interesting to me. I mean, and I mean, to what extent do you think those principles are actually contradictory? Um, and actually is the duty to share information, is that as important as they, they claim it is?
0: I think this ties to um, what kind of information we're talking about here mm. and um, in what ways it gets used. So the duty to share information is the expectation that patients will permit the um, use of their diagnostic information, their healthcare histories, Um, that can be aggregated to a general level and then used to create kind of population-level judgments about Mm. who's likely to suffer from what kind of disease and what Mm. kinds of treatments are effective. So in that sense, I think it's really connected to ideas around evidence-based medicine. Mm. And um, so the obligation to share your information is an obligation to do something good for the whole of humanity Mm. by offering something freely, up in order that a better decision can be made as to mm. what's your trajectory out of that illness or something like that. And some of the promises that have been made around the kind of cold questions around issues of privacy are that once data is aggregated, it's no longer possible to work out that it's you. So it's not a privacy problem. Mm. Um, and I think there's an argument there that if you are... Um, the father of twins in a small rural area where you're the only non-white person, then actually you can be drilled down mm. to at one level. But I think there's another argument also, which is less a personal argument. It's more about the valorisation of evidence-based medicine yeah. overall. So this is the idea that we can use more um, kind of traditional, firm and effective scientific methods for um, judging how patients should be treated. Mm -hmm. So, and in one level, it's unanswerable. Of course, you want good evidence, and the scientific method is going to provide good evidence. But there are some critiques of that model and of that privileging of science as the principle around which medicine should be of allocated and look, and how people should be looked after. Um, and Trish Greenhouse has written about this a couple of years ago in interesting ways. And I read her critique as partly a methodological critique. So the scientific method generates evidence in particular kinds of settings, but healthcare treatment happens in other kinds of settings in dirty, noisy, overcrowded wards with lots of people who are asked to do lots of things. So the kind of comparability is um, not straightforward there. Results from evidence based uh, from a kind of scientific experimental setting don't necessarily work in other Mm -hmm. kinds of settings. And partly because patients are really complex. So if you're going to have an ordinary patient with multiple illnesses, then you can't necessarily apply the results of the experiment that looked at one or the, the study that looked at one of those illnesses. I think there's also problems around the frameworks for treatment that emerge from that. So they tend to generate standardised treatment, so a protocol that you can go through. Mm -hmm. And I think that has a really clear effect on how medical staff are asked to work. So in some way, it's a de-skilling. So if you're going through a protocol, then that's what you're doing. You don't need a well-trained nurse. You need someone who can tick a box and follow it through. And I think the most fundamental problem with that is that there's a loss of the importance of the tacit knowledge of the medical professional who reads you, listens to you, here's the thing that you kind of said as a sideline but actually might turn out to be quite important to your particular trajectory. So I think there's lots of ways in which we might have some worries about the dominance of evidence-based medicine Um, and also to think about what the privileging of that as a kind of data relates to the privileging of other kinds of data. So I think that that kind of data which is deemed neutral objective and is valorised we see other kinds of data seen as neutral, objective and valorised and this is where the information revolution gets problematic because all those kinds of data we would argue are not neutral and objective yeah. they're always coming out of particular trajectories
1: Yeah, absolutely and um, that's interesting that that kind of uh, progression which you, which you kind of hinted at there and that of older form of medicine, the kind of bedside medicine um, of the very much the power and authority for, for, for good and ill in lots of ways being invested in the person of, of the medical profession, usually the doctor with that ability to make judgments and pronouncements mm. on, on, on on things. Uh, and it is arguably being uh, perhaps being taken away from them. Um, would you see that as, as, a, as a kind of a, a shift of power from those individuals to, to kind of the system or is it to the management Um, or into this kind of amorphous thing of evidence-based medicine? um.
0: Yeah, I think when you say... I think it's right that to say that the power has shifted, but power is always complex and multidimensional course, yeah. and mm. difficult to say um, how and why it shifted. And mm. here, you and I have a regular disagreement. So my, my colleague Ewan argues, and um, this is quite common in health sector research, that it's just a deliberate attempt to um, attack the power of the entrenched medical mm. professions. I think that's a well-established kind of um, argument in yeah. health studies literature, which I have some sympathy with, but which doesn't make sense to me of the number of clinical practitioners who um, are part of and supporting the kind of system that I don't see these professional bodies as as monolithic and similar and always having the same interests in mind Um, and I think that the question of where the power goes is not one that merits a quick and easy answer because I think we could make an argument that tech companies and big pharma companies have a stake in this kind of story mm. and might be interested in gathering particular kinds of data um, about patients. I think the state has a really significant role um, that requires lots of attention to think about how did we get to this and what is their sense of where we're going? Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, uh, I think that's a yeah that's a very sensible <laughs> kind of position and. Um, I think there is a tendency, I'm probably one of these people who does this as well, to kind of maybe to overstate this and maybe to be slightly too too negative on it. But I think that there is perhaps a sense in which, um, of course, it's not a monolithic grab, necessarily power grab as such, but there's certain ideas of what is good management. That come through And mm. we see this in lots of areas. We see this you know, in universities. It's a good idea to do this kind of thing. Yeah. It's a good idea to be data-driven. Yeah. It's a good idea to... Um, 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 to um, have flexible contracts this kind of thing um, regardless of whether it actually is good in that context Um, so you kind of maybe get a broad almost hegemonic kind of idea about what good management is in a broad sense Um, and yeah it certainly seems to me that part of that is about shift perhaps about shifting power uh, in that way so would you suggest that there are certain types of understandings which are being um, which are being kind of pushed away or, or, or sidelined in some way? So, for instance, we've talked a bit about uh, about the, the doctors and their kind of interpretation. Um, but does this does this mean that actually the um, the way in which um, care is actually delivered is being affected is that something that you could you could comment on from what you've looked at um or is it is it merely a kind of a the way in which data data is collected off it you know also kind of like an exhaust or something mm. did you find it's, it's it's impacting on how care happens
0: i think you can't separate those as, as processes i think the mm. care and the kind of data gathering and the data transmission are absolutely fundamental to it Um, I think we saw this um, in a number of the recent NHS crises, questions of, say, how illnesses get coded and how that affects kind of how a particular um, service is judged as good or bad. I think coding of illness was really significant in the mid-staff's crisis. Mm -hmm. So we, um, and I think I've got a great example of um, the way in which the care and the data are connected together. We talked to someone who was working in a, Um, organization that was having to pick up the problems of the transmission of data about certain patients. So patients had been medically discharged but hadn't had discharge letters. So they were fine physically but the organization, the the NHS thought that they were still under its treatment. So um, the interviewee had a temporary flex contract uh, job where his job was to identify problem patients in the system and get them churned out in whatever direction, mm-hmm. so get them discharged. In order to do that, he had uh, three computer programs open across two screens and had to copy and paste different bits of patient level data in order that all the different elements could be matched up. So that the patient GP could be matched up with what the hospital treatment had um, been and with what the outcome had been. So, there's a sense in which there's a patient sat somewhere thinking, Do I have to go back in for more treatment or am I properly all right? Because I can't yeah. remember what the doctor said. So, something very mundane about the blockages in the flow of a really simple bit of information get in the way of care and in the way of people's feelings. Mm-hmm. In our study of the frailty service, we saw this at a bigger level as well because we had multiple agencies, each of which shared a very strong commitment to the idea that frail elderly people needed particular attention. Um, But negotiating how they might share the data between them about the patients, how they might share the data about their desire, about what their uh, new strategy was going to be, was incredibly complex mm. and failed on multiple occasions, um, and some of that was because they simply didn't have any mechanism for telling each other what they knew about the other patient. About the patient, and some of it was that they were worried about mm. sharing too much organisational information.
1: So those kind of data management issues
0: yeah. do seem to infiltrate yeah.
1: through it in various ways. Um,
0: I think there is also a question about the promise of technology. Mm. So, if you've got a district nurse and she needs to gather information, why not give her an iPad mm. or some kind of tablet to record it? And that seems like an obvious technological solution. In the area where we were studying, um, there just wasn't the um, internet connection because of the geography of it, um, the internet connection made it really difficult for them to download patient information prior to going and seeing the patient. So the tech solution doesn't work, you have to go back to a paper solution. So one of the things that I think we'd argue is that there are a lot of really mundane problems that get in the way of the clear transmission of data in the NHS.
1: You suggested um, in some of your writings that these kinds of automated systems, data-driven automated systems, enable an insurance approach to health, um, could you kind of explain a bit about what you, how you see that as happening or why do they function in that way?
0: Okay, I, think, I don't think we call it an automated system oh, because I don't think it works and I think probably when we wrote the paper that you wrote about, we thought there was an automated okay. system um, because why wouldn't there be an automated system? That would seem really possible in this day and age. So I'm not certain it's an automated system um, because it's quite clunky and doesn't necessarily work, or that might be the desire. And I would say that there are a number of welfare states which have very effective insurance Mm. systems. The US is not one of those. Mm. But so often our um, NHS policymakers look solely to the US, and in fact the US looks to us. Mm. So um, the idea of integrated care, which lies behind some of the changes, uh, to the NHS, which is kind of modelled on the USHMO Kaiser Permanente and their model of an integrated care provider. So insurance systems are not per se problematic, um, but importing a privatisation system into the kind of system that we have, which is largely being a state-funded system deemed to be free at the point of use, that's where the complexity lies, I think. And I'm not certain that the UK is moving to an insurance system, um, although clearly they are going to be greater elements of private provision. What we still have at the moment is an umbrella NHS where it's to buy, to, to a large extent, free at the point of use for now. But what we've got is um, a marketised system for the organisations that offer within it. So they're competing with each other. For a patient, it seems like the NHS, the organisational level is different and much more complex.
1: Yeah, and that's um, I think that's probably something I've experienced as uh, as a patient mm-hmm. in the NHS. And I can't um, not knowing about the internal workings very much, other than bits reading bits and pieces from people like yourself. Um, it's hard to see that as uh, as a user or a patient or whatever we're called today, um, and it, it, it can be quite confusing actually to to see. Or to, to kind of try and get any understanding of how that works and it seems like it's all one thing because it has this little badge mm-hmm. of NHS on it to you, um, uh, to us I think. Um, but, that, but yeah that, that can be confusing. Um,
0: I think that's starting to change a bit as hmm. well. So um, some of the private providers stepping into NHS provision building beautiful new facilities Mm. that look like very cheap chain hotels often with their own branding alongside NHS branding and I've seen these a few times and I think partly that people are often persuaded by a new building Mm. that seems nice and shiny rather than a Victorian hospital with that Mm. special kind of green paint on the wall (laughs) Um, and partly that these are often quite high-tech systems. So I went to one where I was given a beeper to tell me when my appointment was due, exactly like the beeper I got in Argos when it told me that my new iron yeah. was ready. Yeah. So technology, mundane technology is being used as part of um, just persuading patients that this is an okay place to mm-hmm. be. But I think is part of... Repro- reprogramming is too strong reframing the patient as customer mm-hmm. and offering them a customer service experience and mm-hmm. which technology is part of that and and so i think that's starting to shift And as people mm-hmm. get used to that then it's easier to kind of see well oh actually private sector is not so bad mm-hmm. after all for me personally because i had this experience you read it in the press that the big healthcare providers walk out of hospitals because they turn out not to be able to make them pay. Yeah. So there's still a massive organisational and citizen-level problem. If your everyday experience is that, oh, it was okay, actually, then suddenly a private provision of the NHS doesn't sound so scary. Yeah.
1: And this is kind of related, actually, to something you, uh, you've also written about, is the, um, uh, the, the friends and family test, hmm. um, which is, uh, has become quite kind of notorious, I suppose. Um, And if people don't know about it, um, you can explain better than me, but as I understand it, it's almost a kind of trip advisor for NHS services um, in which people can rate how satisfied they are with a particular service that they've had. And it's been been heavily pushed, Um, but I think you said it's been quite negatively uh, received by NHS staff in general.
0: Yeah, um, of course it's re- negatively received <laughs> by NHS staff. It's it's kind of a nonsense, isn't it? Because it transforms any kind of ethics of care into mm-hmm. an ethics of service and a service relationship. Um, and I also feel like, I'm a patient on several occasions, how can I assess my medical care? I can tell you if the nurse smiled, mm-hmm. but not whether she gave me the right dosage of drugs and it's the second that matters. Mm-hmm. I can tell you if the toilets look clean, mm-hmm. but not if the MRSA checks have been done properly and mm-hmm. the second is what matters, Um I think. And then just the, the very principle of a friends and family test. So. If my dad has skin cancer like I have, I would like him to have this treatment. How can I ever, ever like fill that in with any degree of sincerity or reasonableness? Or how can that complexity of thought process be turned into a smiley face or an unsmiley face? Um, and so it's this framing of patients of customers which generates different expectations. And um, I think it generates a loss amongst patients of the good feelings which they may have towards the NHS because they're invited to judge mm-hmm. and they're invited to say, we, you can judge us and that will count for something. Mm-hmm. You can that, that data is important to yeah. us. And that just generates this mentality, not mm-hmm. good, mm-hmm. don't like that. And I don't think that really helps anybody see the NHS for its virtues. And so and I think that's a part of a campaign to undermine trust in the NHS.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we still hear repeatedly from uh, at various times, from politicians and others, the NHS is is the, the most valued thing, one of the most defining characteristics of Britishness, mm-hmm. um, almost. And um, it does seem to me that that does, it does seem to undermine or, or at least not fully grasp that emotional relationship, which I think a lot of people still have mm-hmm. um, to it, Um but and also, um, actually, for some people, uh, part of that is a sort of a deferentiality to it. I think yeah. as as a kind of a higher yeah. thing. And I know, like with my grandparents, they, they they don't like to ask questions. You know, they go to doctor a lot. As yeah. older people tend to, they don't like to ask questions or to question. Yeah. Uh, in the way that, um, I might do a little bit more, uh, or my parents' uh, kind of generation might do. And that is part of that, actually having that trust yeah. In, in, yeah. in individuals, but also in yeah. the structures itself. And,
0: also, and gratitude for its presence and yeah, yeah. all that that offers. And you know, the, the idea of not daring to ask your doctor um, or daring to question is clearly a problem. But I don't think that the solution to that no. is to reframe the patient uh, in a customer service language.
1: Just um, a little bit about um, your broader theoretical approach. Um, And I think how how you've spoken about how this occurs is um, this this sort of an encroachment of private corporations into healthcare. Um, You see that it's kind of reformulating um, assemblages, uh, data assemblages, um, or assemblages of of data and people and these kinds of things. Um, Could you say something about... That kind of theoretical approach you've taken, and what what that really means.
0: Okay. And um, yes. So, and I would say that this is coming much more from Andrew Goffey and mm-hmm. a little bit from me, and much less from you, who comes out of health services background okay. and whose interest in the politics of it. Of it constantly forces it, Andy and I, to address the uh, theoretical assumptions Mm -hmm. we're making. So you've used the term assemblage, and that comes out of actor-network theory. Um, And so um, it's an argument about the materiality, the significance of materiality, and the power of non-human actors. Mm-hmm. And I think in this study, the thing that the non-human actor that is really significant to us is attending to software mm-hmm. and to foregrounding software, not as something that is taken for granted, exists in the background around which other power relations flow, but as something that carries its own power relations with it. Mm-hmm. So to attend to data, to attend to information, to think just about the technology itself and what it makes possible and what it doesn't make possible, as the kind of story that we're interested in telling.
1: So that these things, the, the data and the kind of data systems aren't neutral, they're not simply neutral Absolutely. tools. They they, they, they construct what it, yeah. what it means to be a patient or a doctor yes. or a, yes. a data manager or whoever else in that context.
0: Yeah. And we've been thinking particularly with Latour's idea about translation. Yep. So um, if you have coding for this particular diagnosis you have code for a patient whatever it is this is a process of translation mm. from the natural language in which a clinician is speaking to a nurse or a patient is speaking to a doctor that gets turned into some kind of icd10 code or something yeah. like that um and I think what
1: that what I think it's a really valuable way of understanding that and it gets it away from um, again from the, the, the point that you made earlier about Sort of portioning blame anywhere or anything, but an understanding that these technological or kind of data interventions reformulate the relations mm. that, that already exist, create new relations, uh, new possibilities, and new kind of constraints, I think, as Absolutely.
0: well. I think that, and one of the critiques that Andy and I would have of the of a kind of traditional SDS version, and is yeah. where we'd return and take uh, pay a lot of attention to the kind of approach human would bring, is that um, discourse is a really significant actor. Mm-hmm. This is not just about the material um, as sort of elements of the assemblage, it's about the power of uh, the discourses around healthcare, And technology Mm. so when you have things like the promise of disruptive technology which Mm. makes me feel a little bit nauseous actually Mm. because I think it's a a childlike way of thinking about what change could be and how it should be but the promise of disruptive technology that software entrepreneurs might be making which might be heard by a policymaker by a healthcare manager to think oh oh we better try that that Mm. sounds like a great idea um, that to us seems like something to really attend very carefully to because it's quite problematic I think.
1: Yeah exactly uh, and again um, for people wanting treatment and, want to, and increasingly people need ongoing care rather mm. than uh, you know for chronic problems rather than acute problems that, that's how our hope healthcare has... uh, works now really today and um, the idea of Things being constantly disrupted probably doesn't sound very appealing, yes, yes. And, and I'm sure not to staff either. No,
0: no. So, um, Ed Granter and Paula Hyde have done some really interesting work about the last big change in the NHS, mm-hmm. which was the idea of lean, and how yes. staff found this mm-hmm. incredibly difficult to understand what lean meant. And they had a change already, <laughs> Chris was just leaning for yeah. those of you listening, and um, they had a change already in process. And so any change that they were going in, they just rebranded to say, well, this is lean Mm because we're making things more efficient because change is always good. NHS is incredibly change sensitive. It's been through so Mm -hmm. many changes. Staff are used to managers coming up with like a new idea for Mm -hmm. this week. One of the things we found in the frailty services that we were talking to uh, very senior members of the different agencies is how few of them had talked to on the ground staff and how little on-the-ground staff were thinking about the frailty service that they had a stake in. So I think the question about the staff is really an important one. Staff are, are used to change, are used to being blamed. They're demoralised, they're underpaid, they're overworked. It's not a great place to work in the NHS, and it's really hard to prioritise good care in those situations. So disruptive technology, please know.
1: <laughs> exactly and i've heard this uh, i've been to kind of events about kind of digital health stuff um with um, um people from the nhs from nice academics and, uh, and and developers and this kind of thing and amongst that kind of, those kind of groups there's often this idea that the nhs is really holding things back because it's so hard to kind of get a new um technology or app or something into nhs because they're used to working on this model of Clinical trials and, and being very cautious, and that just doesn't work with that kind of startup tech kind of philosophy. Okay. But there's a re- there is a reason for that.
0: I think there is uh, a number of reasons, but the big reason is the NHS is chronically underfunded, yeah. and no money has gone into technology for years. Yeah. So um, we spoke to an IT th- uh, clinical. No, sorry, that would be the wrong way. We spoke to um, the IT director. At a major hospital trust, and his budget is around eight percent of the NHS of his NHS mm-hmm. budget. Um, it's not enough for them to um, have decent quality computers. They've just decided they've got the go ahead to uh, replace a green cursor system over twenty years old. Um, so from the time when I was first using computers, yeah. that's just being replaced. Often they're tied into using Windows XP, mm-hmm. and that's no longer supported even by Microsoft. Mm-hmm. They're tied into expensive licensing systems. Um, it's a massive problem. Mm-hmm. And the uh, Labor go- Tony Blair's Labour government tried to address this with the National Programme for IT, mm-hmm. which is an incredibly expensive billion of mm-hmm. pounds went into that um, to create a kind of a, a big good system where they mm. could have communication between different um, institutions different departments and some bits of that worked but overall the the ambition uh, didn't really work mm. it doesn't sit very well with the current trend in the organization of the nhs since the health and social care act which is around local provision so now we've got a system where um local um Commissioners are making decisions about IT. There's no one who knows about IT on their board. IT experts are not consulted, but a software guy goes in and says, Hey, I think the system can really deal with your electronic patient records Mm -hmm. problem. It's going to work really well. And people around the table who've got different kinds of expertise, they've got no reason to doubt what the IT guy is saying. So we've seen some quite expensive mistakes made that could have been different, and a lot of promises made Mm -hmm. by software engineers and all, I mean not to blame them entirely um how medical staff and how what patients need is really contingent and needs a lot of work and a lot of communication if you did assign a system that works so off-the-shelf systems are always going to impose something mm. that doesn't fit with the ethos and culture of the workplace commissioning or um adapting a system is incredibly expensive and um, sometimes we talk to staff who are like well Amazon can do it, and Facebook can do it, so why can't we? And it's this legacy of underinvestment that's Mm -hmm. really significant here. Uh, It's not a lack of will, but it is a lack of expertise and a lack of uh, numbers of software experts employed within NHS organisations with the money and resources to be able to do something better. So when we talked to the IT guy, he said he had 19 staff. And we said, okay, those are programmers. No, that's 19 staff, including his admin assistant mm. and the guy who goes and sorts the software out. It's it is crazy.
1: Great. It is crazy. And that, that's really interesting. But I think also about that experience of using that as well is that actually a lot of the um, software and devices that we're, we're used to using, as would all the people working in the NHS, are extremely easy to use, user-friendly. Mm. They seem very straightforward, intuitive, really, uh, compared to the, the mm-hmm. kind of technology we would have used when we, yeah. we first used computers, certainly. Um, and there's a big kind of disjuncture in, in, in that experience, I think. Um, and as you mentioned, so this you've talked about this kind of um, this idea of innovation becoming the core business of the NHS, which mm. I think is related to that idea about mm. disruption uh, as, as, a, as a positive. And... Um, and this seems to connect to me to this um, this idea uh, which is being rolled out kind of across government um, of this idea of platform thinking. Mm-hmm. Of, um, this is one of their kind of new watchwords that we should, um, the government should should kind of think like a platform and individual users would be able to kind of go in and kind of access all different services across government, including kind of NHS mm-hmm. um, and council services and other things as a kind of a single user. It, in a very similar way to how you have one login for Google that you access all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you can see how that seems very uh, desirable and, 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 and kind of good for users, but that's never going to work if they're still using kind of MS-DOS or older things, yeah, really.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then... Um Damien Grimshaw, who works at the University of Manchester, published something in 2002 on the limitations of that kind of approach. Mm. So not exactly a platform approach, but the same idea of one point of access for council services, um, which is going to both speed up um, the customer's experience, but also reduce... Uh, staff costs because you can have massive efficiencies. So instead of having to phone six different departments, you go to one place and the call centre sorts it out for you. And it's really telling reading in 2016 um, as to how I think partly that governments are still making similar kinds of arguments, similar kinds of beliefs, but also for what his study found the limitations of that way of doing it so for a start anyone who's a complex case can't work within that system and any complex process can't work within that system so if your bin hasn't been collected it works fine Mm -hmm. if you need something really difficult doing that involves multiple agencies it doesn't work at all Mm -hmm. healthcare is not just about phoning up because you know you're Addressing needs changing. Mm. People often have multiple problematic problems and mm. those need a greater attention. But the, the other thing that I got from reading the Grimshaw study um, was about the mundane stuff that lies behind this kind of promise to the, uh, the worker and to the uh, user. And it's that um, the more the private sector stepped into council services, the less the public service ethos could be maintained and the less expertise the council had themselves mm-hmm. to make decisions about what was an, a good contract. So if um, the firms that they were using said we need a new software system, there was no one left in-house to say whether that was a reasonable thing to ask for or mm-hmm. to say whether the contract was good or not. So I think we've used John Eger's idea about the hollowed-out state to t- think about that kind of process and about other kinds of processes as well. I think that the bigger kind of government Tory policy towards NHL is also vulnerable to this. In a hollowed out state where the civil service um, is, you know, has... How do we put it? If we think about the state as a hollowed out, fewer members of the civil service members of the civil service with particular kinds of understandings about how the world should work, so economics degrees, visions of an efficient market, um, that kind of story, then you don't get countervailing arguments. You get people who might be persuaded by what a tech company can offer and think that the technological solution is going to work. And I'm not certain that it has worked in the council, um yeah case and I'm not sure that it would work in healthcare either.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's where we see the kind of uh, the, 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 the political manoeuvring has kind of really come into this because of course those kinds of ideas and those that, that are being uh, proposed in there do come quite direct, directly from certain kinds of think tanks yeah. um, which are proposed to kind of, uh, politicians, yeah. uh, ministers and obviously to, and, and to managers and so yeah. the, these kind of ideas around these groups and then become yeah. implemented. Yeah. But they they they, ha, they often have quite specific um, roots. And yeah. um, come from particular people yeah. with uh, often who did that literally the same degrees at Oxford. Yeah. <laughs> often. Yeah. Um, just uh, finally, because I've kept you for a long time, um, I ask you a really difficult question to end with, um, which is just that. Uh, all the, the lots of things you talked about, and um, the, the kind of this potential for privatisation, some of the potential negatives of of the, these technologies, and the, this uh, the, this data um, information revolution. Um, firstly, are these things that you think we we should be resisting? Um, and secondly, is there any what ways could we be resisting it if um, if you think we should?
0: Okay, that's, um, yeah, you're right, Chris, that is the difficult question to ask. I guess I'll um, take a sideline to answer it. Um, I think it's really hard to resist things that are pretty much hidden. Mm. And I think a lot of the organisational change has not been well publicised, it's not well known. A lot of the, what we know about the NHS is often a story about um, its weaknesses and its failings. But the accounting for those weaknesses and failings is not, to my mind, um, suitable or sufficient. So it's junior doctors because they don't want to work on these contracts. It's nurses who don't care anymore and nurses used to care. But I'd say the story is 40 years of Mm organisational change, which has been a slow drip of marketisation. So the 2012 Health and Social Care Act couldn't just have been imposed. It had to have taken all the internal market that it that the NHS went through, the process of turning hospitals into hospital trusts, and all those other kinds of changes. So I think a story about resistance gets really difficult when you've had incremental change, when some of those changes are really out of the public eye, um, where it's quite difficult to see what they are. So um, in our frailty service, we've been looking at it for ages, and we still don't have a clear story about what kinds of outcomes data are used in what kinds of context to determine whether a service was good or not. So that's internal. And there may be good reasons for it's internal, though it's internal a little bit because this is a competitive process and so all these private sector providers don't want things to be too visible. So I think resistance is a difficult thing to think about Mm. in this kind of story. Um, Yeah.
1: And I think that that's, um, yeah, well done. <laughs> um, that's, that's an extremely good answer. But I mean, that is, um, I think, the great value of the work that, that you, uh, w- uh, along with the other guys, um, have been doing is that it it helps to elucidate what is going on, what has gone on and um, to understand that, that context and, and, and the workings uh, because without that, I think, there's, there's probably, there's no hope of, of resisting the things that, that need to be um, to my mind. And, um, yeah, I, I, I hope there is there is there is some some reason uh, for optimism, um, but certainly yeah, without that understanding, it, it won't be possible. Yeah. But um, we'll say goodbye yeah. and uh, thank you uh, very much for seeing tonight. Oh, so for Chris. fascinating chat, and uh, please see you soon.
0: Yeah, wonderful. Thank you.
1: So, hope you enjoyed that interview and got something interesting out of it. Um, as always, I appreciate any comments on my blog. This is blog or on Twitter, at Chris H. Till. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes, uh, that would be great. Um, the theme music is Bleeps Galore by Rocco. And the incidental music is Disco Stomp by Jonas78. And they're both used on a Creative Commons license. I'll see you next time.